0: Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our teaching pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we continue our series, The World's Gone Mad. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box, at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Is it just me, or is that the creepiest bumper we've ever had? Is that... <laughs> anyone creeped out right now? <laughs> well... Good morning, welcome, a special welcome if you're joining us digitally. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, this may come as a shock, but sometimes, just sometimes, uh, Christians don't get along. Did you know that? Did anyone, anyone been on Facebook in the last 10 seconds? Yeah. Um, Sometimes we fight, sometimes we disagree, sometimes we really go at it, sometimes it's very public, sometimes it's private, but uh, there's a guy named Tom Rainer, and uh, he's a scholar and a writer and a leader, And he actually proposed this question a couple weeks ago on Twitter. He said, what are some of the craziest church arguments or church fights that you've had? Not expecting that it would kind of go like mega viral. So he threw this question out and he compiled his 25 favorite silly things churches fight about. And here are a few of my favorites, are you ready? These are actual real fights, real arguments, real disagreements uh, in a local church. Uh, There was one argument. Whether or not staff could wear black shirts, since that's the color of the devil. Which I hope not, because like half of our band is in black today, right? That's awkward. Um, Someone apparently brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server, and someone thought it looked like liquor. So they fought about that. I don't know where that went. That's a weird argument. A disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. I mean, good luck with that. Uh, (laughs) Ha, <laughs> good luck, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. It <laughs> was weird because I thought, uh, I thought gluten was a sin. Anyway, um, it's only downhill from here. This is as good as it gets, okay? It's all, okay, thanks. Uh, last but not least, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at church meals or not. Um, uh, <laughs> which there's a correct answer to this. You can as long as there's angel food cake for dessert. Am I right? Uh, (laughs) Okay, thanks, thank you. Oh, that's so kind. Um, Okay, so right, right. So those are obviously, uh, those are worth laughing at. They're silly, but some of you are like, maybe feeling more um, aligned with some than others, but do you know what the most common entry far and away when asked what's the thing that your church argues about? The number one response was this. The temperature in the sanctuary. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just curious, just for my own sake, who right now in this room, right now, you're saying uh, it's way too warm in here? Who's saying it's way too warm? Let's look around. Okay, some of you. All right, how many of you like, are wearing three layers? You're like, it's way too cold in here. It's way too, oh my gosh. Uh, how many of you say the bowl of porridge is just right? Who's saying, wow, right? Why don't we give it up for our facilities team? Yes. actually really encouraging. My guess, though, is this, that if if you're around church for any length of time, or honestly just around people, uh, you're gonna run into conflict. You're, You're gonna find stuff to argue about, and I don't know what it is for you, maybe it was a conflict in a small group, maybe it was an argument about a political belief, maybe it was a decision by a leader, maybe it was you felt like an issue was being ignored, or maybe it was honestly just someone said a careless word that they probably wouldn't even remember. My point is this, if you were around people long enough you're gonna find stuff to fight about. You're gonna find stuff to get angry about, to get mad about. So, so what I want you to do for the next 20 minutes or so, I want you to be thinking about a conflict that is still unresolved. That could be a person, that could be a group of people, that could be a moment in time. I want you to think about some sort of rift, some sort of conflict that is still unreconciled, is still undealt with, and maybe you didn't even remember that you remembered it until I said it just now. I want you to spend the next 20 minutes or so thinking about what is that thing or what is that person that 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 fracturing relationship is still true. Because if you're around people at all, fighting is inevitable. Getting mad at each other is inevitable. And it's kind of why we've called this series The World's Gone Mad. Last week we talked about mad at me because sometimes the person that we're most mad at is ourselves. We haven't actually dealt with whatever's going on in our heart and we forget or have never known the free gift of grace that we have in Jesus? Next week, we're gonna talk about mad at them. Whoever the them is for you, by the way, that could be a different ethnicity, a different skin color, a different political affiliation, a different denomination, whatever that them is for you, we're gonna talk about what do, we, what do we do when we're mad at them? But today, I wanna to talk about us. What does it look like to be mad at us, the people of God, the church? And and when I say the church, there's all sorts of different definitions about what the church is. Here's the simplest definition. The church is the people of God. Are we tracking? To kind of put it in perspective, if we opened these doors on a Sunday and no one showed up, this would not be the church. It'd be an awesome room it's not the church. The church is the people of God from all time, for all time, so it's people. And when you get people together, there is always inevitable tension. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What does it look like to be mad at us? And why is this even important? Well, simply put, I, I think it's important because God desires unity. God desires unity. In fact, there's a a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and this is a main theme of this letter. And the letter, it's beautiful. If you have a chance to read all of Ephesians, it's beautiful, but it's divided right down the middle. The first half of Ephesians is the theology piece. Here's what's true now in Christ Jesus. The first half is just telling them what is. The second half is here's how to live it out now. So first half is here's what's true. Second half is the application. Here's what to do with that information. And in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says this. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's saying many of you have been that or have felt that. That's not your identity anymore. You're not foreigners, you're not strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's the stone by which you set the whole building. He's the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. We're in the process of being built, by the way. The temple of God is not a prefab, it's stick-built. We're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So I, personally, I, I love this passage, and I don't know if you caught this, but the, the imagery gets more and more specific. It gets more and more intimate. He begins talking about fellow citizens, right? That's sort of like the, that's the national sort of civic language. But then he says, members of God's household. That's like the the familial, ancestral kind of imagery. But then he says, stones in a temple. And that's the habitat, the dwelling imagery. It gets more and more intimate, more and more closely related. Think about this. Um, When it comes to a king, the king only has to live in the same country as the kingdom, right? He only has to live in the same country as his people, but that could be hundreds upon hundreds of miles he says, you're no longer foreigners or strangers. You, you belong here. Has anyone ever gone away on a long trip and then you came back home? and You're like, oh, I can, I can read the signs and I know what's in this burger and I know there's something about coming home. He says, you're, you're home. You're no longer foreigners or strangers. You belong. And then he says, the father image. So a king is in the same nation, but a father's under the same what? Under the same roof, right? Much Much more intimate, much more close. And again, A family isn't just about like relationship, it's intimacy, it's access, but it's also about protection, right? Which kind of raises the question, if that's some of the imagery that we're given, are we a place of refuge? Would people look to the people of God at Community Christian Church, say that's a safe place to belong, it's a place of refuge, it's a place where people have each other's backs, they stand up to one another, there's intimacy, there's accountability, but he doesn't stop there. It says king, and then father, and, and then he says, and, and he doesn't dwell near the temple. No, he dwells where in the temple? In the temple. And this is, this is where it gets maybe a little controversial because, and I totally believe this, we've often said, you know, I'm, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. You individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but there's all sorts of language throughout the New Testament that says that we also collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. A single stone is not a temple. A collection of stones, that makes a temple. And how close is a stone in a temple? As close as it possibly could be. He's making it sound very, very obvious what he's getting at. It's closeness, intimacy, unity, and he inhabits us together. And so God has this vision for unity, and then Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. So the first three chapters, he's laid out the theology, the doctrine, this is what's true, and then he's unpacking what to do with that. And he says, make every effort. Unity matters. It's important. So important, in fact, that he beseeches them to make every effort they possibly can. Now, notice when he says make every effort, for me, at least at first blush, this implies a couple of things. One, sometimes unity is hard. We don't usually just like fall backwards into unity, saying, man, sometimes it's gonna take some blood, sweat, and tears. It's gonna be having conversations that you'd rather not have. It means looking people in the eye even though it's awkward. He says, make every effort. Because I, I think the enemy wants nothing more than to divide us. That would, be, that would be an appropriate tactic, wouldn't it? Just get us fighting with each other. Get us constantly stabbing each other in the back. Get us saying things to another person when someone else isn't listening or saying, man, that person's dead to me and there's nothing they can do to change that. Of course, that's what the enemy wants with us is disunity, is discord. And it also means that sometimes, sometimes reconciliation is impossible. He says, make every effort as if to imply there will be times, maybe a toxic relationship, something that's absolutely damaging. You say, hey, uh, I can wish the best for you, but we don't need to see each other anymore. Now, I don't know about you, I think when we get mad, we tend to fit into one of two categories. I know that we're complex beings, and it's probably way too reductionistic, but we tend to fall in one of two categories, uh, either fight or flight. So raise your hand if you're a fighter in the room. Raise your hand. Your fight is your response. How many, of you, how many fighters are mad that not everyone's raising their hand right now? Like, you're ready to fight somebody. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Okay, now who are the flighters? Who are sinking down in their chair right now? Like, I can't believe he's talking about this in church of all places. Why? Okay, so this may come as a surprise. I tend to land more in the fight category. Now, I don't really have the body of a brawler, so it's not really like physical fighting, but my struggle is that I fight with my words. Anyone know what I'm talking about where you start saying things before you've even had time to think about it and you're like, no, 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 let me get those. That, that is such a, a struggle for me comes out in sarcasm, comes out in biting words. And I, and I do just wanna say this. I, I have no doubt that I, I've said words probably to some of you in this room, and that hurt you, and that put distance between us, and I am so, so sorry. I'm not excusing you. This is something that I, I'm praying that God will grow in me. But that fight instinct is just there. I have to work really, really hard to get better. Either fight or flight, though, the result is a fracturing. The bond of peace is lost, and that's not God's dream for his church, for his people. So rather than fight or flight, uh, I want to propose a third way forward, and that is unite. Rather than fight or flight, I want to propose what I think God would have for us as his people is to unite. So what, what does that actually look like? If unity is so important, what does it look like? Well, let me first tell you what it doesn't look like. Unity does not mean uniformity, okay? I've heard way too many sermons about unity just looking like uniformity. We all look and talk and act and think and vote exactly the same way. That's not what unity is at all. We're different, and not only should we be okay with that, I think we should celebrate that. We come from different backgrounds with different wirings, and we see the world in a different way, and we're better together. We just are. One of the things that we say a lot around here is if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. I don't know about you, I wanna go together. I I wanna see impact that way outlives any of us. That's what I desire for us. So it isn't about uniformity, about we all just look and talk and act and think exactly the same, we all listen to the same music and we all dress the same, no, no, no. In fact, I had a mentor years ago. He said, I think the church is like a stew. And I was like, I'm listening. Uh, He says, the church is like a stew, and how boring would a stew be if it was only one flavor? And I was like, great point, point. and now I'm hungry. I'm with you, I get that. But like, think of a song if it was just one note. It'd be so boring. Unity is not uniformity. It's not about flattening it all so we all look the same. And, and here's maybe something worth wrestling with. Thinking alike is not the same thing as thinking together. Are we tracking? It's not about thinking alike, but it's about thinking Together, Diversity brings a richness to our community, and I think we should celebrate that. Not just be okay with it, but to celebrate it. In fact, Paul uses this beautiful metaphor in 1 Corinthians. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, Democrat, Republican. I added that one. We were all given the same one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. He goes on to say, an ear can't say to a hand, I don't need you because you're not an ear. Like, can we all just laugh for a second? How funny would a just ear body be? Just 510 of all ear, right? Not only would it look hilarious, but it would be missing all sorts of functions. He's saying. We're meant to function like a body. We've all been baptized by the same spirit, but we need to look different. We need to act different, we function different. I think diversity compels us to look beyond our preferences and opinions and to defer in humility to the whole. But maybe you're asking, well, shouldn't we agree on at least some things? Yes, absolutely. I totally think we should. The illustration I usually give is that we have things in the open hand and things in the closed hand. So for me personally, in the close hand, God made the world. God made that's a that's a big deal to me. If you if you man, that's a tough one to get around. God made the world, but in the open hand, was the actual seven literal seven days, was it something else? We can disagree on that and still call this place home and still call each other family. Yes, yes, there are things we agree on, but man, there's there's way more things in the open hand than in the close hand. Jesus rose from the dead. He's the son of God. That, that kind of stuff. But so often, don't we get caught bickering about the open hand stuff? Have you guys noticed that? How easy it is to get disjointed there? Okay, so now that we know what it's not, what unity is not, here, here's what it is. And I, I can say a bunch of things about this. Here's the bottom line when it comes to unity. Unity is mission critical. Unity is mission critical. Here's, here's the problem, so often we talk about unity, we sort of like categorize it as like, oh, that's a nice thing. That'd be a, a good thing if we could get there eventually. I, I believe that unity is mission critical. Here's what I mean. When we think of Jesus and his mission, there are, I think, a couple of passages that kind of always come to the top of my mind. There's a few passages that I always think of first. One of the first scriptures is Matthew 28. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples a little while before he's ascended back to heaven. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So when it comes to the Jesus mission, it isn't just like one verse or one idea, but that's, that's pretty central to it. And I would say you could maybe summarize that idea with the word Go. He says, therefore, go. And this word go, it doesn't just mean like hopping on a plane and going somewhere else. It actually means in your going, wherever your life has you, wherever God has placed you, whatever your sphere is, be on mission. He's saying go, and then he, and he ends it with this promise. And the reason you don't have anything to fear is because I'm, I'm with you. So the reason it's the most common command in all the scriptures, fear not. And almost every time it's linked with this idea, for I am with you. So he says, go, make disciples baptize, teach, change the world. He's saying, we're not gonna change the world by going to church. We're gonna change the world by being the church. So go, take, take what you've seen, what you've experienced into the world. But he didn't just tell us to go. He also told us how to go. Listen to what he says in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone heard this verse before? He's saying it's not just enough to go, it's to go with love, to go with the aroma of Jesus. It's not just enough to teach and to baptize and make disciples. If there's not love in it, it's not of God, why? Because God isn't just loving, he is love. So any of our Christian activity that isn't rooted in love is not of God. Period. End of story. And so often we justify, like, sometimes you got to tell them the hard truth. Of course you do. Of course we need each other to be better. But to do a divorce from love is to do a divorce from God, because God is love. And so you have the great commission, and then you have also the great commandment. We're called to go, and he tells us how to go. But I think there's a third essential part, and I'm going to call this the great collaboration the great collaboration the word there is unity in order to carry out the mission we have to go together in fact the night before jesus was crucified hours before his execution he prays this prayer he says that this is him speaking to the father that they may be one as we are one i and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete what's the word there <laughs> complete unity Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you see why I think this is mission critical? He's saying the way the world will know that Jesus is for real and that God loves them is by the unity of the church. That's how they'll know. They won't know by how great their buildings are or how slick their websites are. Those things are fine. He says, they will know that when an outside world looks in and says, man, that's a group of very diverse people that they just seem to love and forgive and care for each other in a way that I've never seen before. Unity is not just a nice idea. It is mission critical. It's mission critical. I think that's why Jesus is often talking about this idea of reconciliation. In fact, he says in Matthew 5, maybe the most famous sermon he's ever given, he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what's he say? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. What a challenge is that? He's like, if you're, you're at the temple, you're worshiping and you remember this, stop what you're doing. Put it on the ground. Go and make this right. And I think this short passage gives us at least three challenges. The first is that unity requires reflection. It requires honest reflection. It says if you're at the altar and you remember this, it, it requires an honest evaluation. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just like stuff all the negative feelings down. A fractured relationship, a broken friendship. I just sort of like, I'll deal with that when I'm 90, right? Just no need to... It requires honestly saying, is there something in my heart, something in my soul, something in my head that's not right? We've said it before, Pain that's not transformed will be transmitted. Does that make sense? Pain that's not transformed and dealt with will be eventually transmitted. They say that anger is actually a secondary emotion, that what a person really is, is hurt. Have you ever find yourself blowing up at somebody, you're like, why am I so angry right now? What is happening? It's pain that wasn't transformed. It will eventually be transmitted. If you don't heal what hurt you, you end up bleeding on people who didn't cut you. It's so important for us to have honest evaluation of what's going on in our heart. Number two, unity requires determination. Determination. I said it earlier, unity's not easy. Please, please don't leave your thinking like, oh, just unity. It'll go skip hand in hand, and it's a piece of cake. Unity is hard. In fact, Jesus was saying these words, mostly to people who lived in Galilee. The only temple was the temple in Jerusalem, the altar in Jerusalem, which was like 80 miles away. You see where this is going? To tell them to leave their gift at the altar and go and be reconciled, for some people, meant a trip of a week or more. It, that's a serious laying down of pride, isn't it? He said, Unity is not easy, but Paul's saying, make every effort. If you're at the altar, do you remember? Oh, that's right, something's broken here. Leave it. Leave it, go deal with it, and come back. And third, unity requires initiation. You gotta gotta initiate. Unity starts with me. Matthew 5 here says, if you remember someone has something against you, go and be reconciled. And then later in Matthew 12, he says, if you remember that you have something against someone else, go and be reconciled. Either way, he says, it starts with you. It's not about when that person hasn't apologized or I don't think that enough time has passed, I don't think they've earned it. That's the scandal of grace. That when we could do nothing to earn, deserve, or merit it, God comes after us. Forgiven people are forgiving people. That's how it works, and it requires initiation. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I don't think that person's earned it, probably not. That's the whole point. The whole point of living like this peculiar people in this world is that the whole world lives like, yeah, hold that grudge. Hold on to that infraction. Dig your heels in, but my people, God says, live Differently, They live differently. Either way, it starts with me. And last week, we talked about this need to embrace grace, right? To really, to let God's voice be the one that determines our identity, not all the other voices that in him were a new creation. So today, I want to take that one step further. To not just embrace grace, that's the starting point, but to also extend grace. That's what maturity is. We begin first by, by absolutely just saying, God, I, when I can do nothing to earn your favor, you come after me, you saved me. But it doesn't stop there. We now extend that to everyone we come in contact with. That's the mission. So who is that person for you? 20 minutes ago when I asked you to think about a person or an incident, what, who's that person or that group of people or that moment in time that when you go back there, you're like, yeah, there's still a lot of pain there. There's some healing that needs to take place. What would it look like to pray for the courage to put one foot in front of the next and say, God, not because they deserved it, but because you call us to live differently? Who is that person? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it someone in this room right now? Is it someone in your row? Is it someone you're sitting next to? What would it look like to be a people of reconciliation? Because unity... It's not just like a nice, good, cute thing. Jesus says, it's how the world will know. Go and be reconciled. So may we, with the Apostle Paul, as best as we possibly can by the power of the Holy Spirit, make every single effort that we can. Would you pray with me, please? God, my my guess is um, there is a whole lot of hurt in this room that I don't know anything about. But you do, though. And God, for the things that happened to us yesterday and the things that happened to us a decade ago, (sighs) would your spirit do a work in our heart that only you can do? We can't do that on our own. We can't heal a human heart. And yet, rather, God, than gripping our lives so tightly, you invite us to receive you, to embrace the grace that you freely give in Jesus. God, help us to be those kinds of people, to encourage, be unified, to be reconciled, God, so that the world may know, that they may know and see and experience your love, your grace, your power. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.